0: You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 120 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. We are brought to you tonight by the Patreon sponsors, all those sexy guys and gals over at Patreon, and you can find that at patreon.com slash pimpcron. And of course, our lovable fuzzy wuzzy sponsor, gamemat.eu, which sells resin, pre-painted terrain, and guess what? Uh a lot of people don't know this, but game EU also sells game mats. I that's it's. I know it's weird. You thought it was like just a coincidence like i i own a tire center but we sell ice cream i don't know we just sometimes you just name businesses weird but this is not one of those cases so uh that is who is sponsoring the show you should go check them out event 10 is our code for getting you 10 percent off your next order at gamemat.eu and we have a lot to cover tonight um I will not be talking a whole lot because we are going to finish up the third part, part three of three of our interview with Alan Merritt, who was chief uh, intellectual property officer and everything else at Games Workshop for 30 years or however long he worked there. And once again, I had a blast um, recording with him. He was so full of neat information, information I've not gotten anywhere else. So, uh, about the origins of Games Workshop and all that. Tonight, we will, among other things, let me give you some bullet points. We will be discussing the inclusion of women and minorities in the gaming community. He discusses that and Games Workshop's view and outlook on that. He also discusses the reason why we don't have female space marines. Why are there no female space marines? I hear you cry out to the heavens. Well, you'll get that answer. And also we discuss how exactly Warhammer 40k came to be, what exactly was the origin point for that, and um, you know, how did things develop exactly, where did the origin of the orcs come from, and the Eldar, and even the Dark Eldar, where did all of that come from? So that is also what we discuss, and we also discuss in the pricing for Games Workshop and what their philosophy is behind it. And it's funny because there's the creative side of it and the sales side of it. And you may be interested to know that it is probably opposite of what you'd expect as far as who wants high prices and who wants low prices. So it's all very fascinating. I'm very excited to finish up this interview. It has taken me a long time to edit. There's a lot of background noise and things like that. So... um This will be the end of it. I hope whoever doesn't like interviews will be happy that this is the end of it. I probably could have went a fourth episode, but I really don't like to drag things out beyond two episodes. This is just a special occasion because it covers so much I've never heard any firsthand accounts about for Games Workshop and Citadel Models. So I am very proud to have this on our show list. So um, what else... We also have a one that or want that not with the old Space Marine Scout models. They're being re-released with a new box and a new box art, I mean. And, um, you know, what do we think of them? Are they still good models? Are they crappy models? What are they? So I will tell you in that segment. Now, um, that is all we have this week. Actually, I don't have any letters in the Tesseract mailbox, believe it or not. Pimpcron at gmail.com or facebook.com slash Pimpcron. And you can message me. And uh, please send me in questions and things like that. That would be awesome. So uh, part of the reason why I don't have a lot of segments tonight is because it has taken me several hours today to edit all of the last half hour of the interview with Alan and all that. So that is going on. Plus, my Wargaming Convention Shorehammer is upon us. It will be this Wednesday through Sunday in Ocean City, Maryland. I'm very, very excited about it, but you know what it's been doing? It's been eating up all of my free time, as it always does. So, I am, I mean, literally every waking hour, I am working on Shorehammer. I mean, I have my regular job to work on, too, but when I'm not working on that, I'm working on Shorehammer. It has been pretty darn busy here at the Shorehammer HQ. Um, A lot of you are probably wondering Hey Pimpcron, there is a lot of stuff going on in the world. How are you having a convention? Well, first off, we are nowhere near the size of like Nova or Las Vegas open, so we are can still afford to do that. Also, um our state laws currently allow us to do that. It's um limiting they're suggesting not more than twenty-five people in a room for gatherings. So what we have is we have um we've rented multiple ballrooms and multiple playstations well not playstations play areas we did not rent playstations. um (laughs) play areas and uh we're limited we are personally capping it at 20 people per room instead of 25 which is what is suggested we also have ample hand sanitizer and we've got this whole system of checking temperatures every day and you get this little purity seal on your badge so everyone else knows you've been checked and we check it off on our list and all that stuff, we will hunt down and attack the person that is not checked off on our list, and you get that done every single morning, and um, all of our tables, every single table is six feet away from all other tables in all directions. So, um, renting multiple ballrooms instead of just two has allowed us to spread all of our tables out really far. Not to mention, our attendance this year, as far as ticket sales, was... um, uh, about 80% of what it was last year, which is still pretty darn good, but I think all of us thought it would be a little better, the whole worldwide situation would be a little better come this time, and unfortunately, it's not, so we've had a lot of cancellations, we've had, um, we are now sitting at about 50% of what we were last year, so, um, that's a pretty big drop, people are canceling, because, even though it's fortunate for my area that we are not suffering too bad from other things. Like I said, Maryland and my county are really ranked low on all this, but other places are. So, you know, of course we're requiring masks and hand sanitizing and everything is touchless now. Even your registration is touchless. Um, So there's no pens being shared. There's no paper slips being handed up. Everything is going to be completely touchless which is pretty cool too and um, all of our narrative games have been spread out six feet so nobody is too close to each other and it's it really is I mean like I said we have medical professional um, on hand and uh, she's she has been the guiding source of all of what should we do what shouldn't we do you know normally we have one main entrance that's the entrance and exit because it's double doors to the one ballroom and, uh, this year, all of our ballrooms have one exit over here and one entrance over here, and there's a flow of traffic and everything's, um, it is so spaced out. It's ridiculous. We have probably half the tables in the same area that we had last year because everything is spread out into different rooms. So that's pretty cool. Um, and also a slight silver lining is because so many people have canceled, um, we have way more room, you know, the, the, it is safer for all of us if there are fewer people, so uh, this, like I said, this is not some massive event, but I'm happy we're still able to have it. There are, unfortunately, a lot of our friends that can't make it this year for personal reasons, you know, dealing with all the issues, and uh, that's tr- that's truly saddening. It really, really upsets me. There's a lot of friends that wanted to come down or come over or come up, and they couldn't and uh they they had to call the shots and ultimately everybody's gotta make that decision for themselves. You know, if um if I lived in a place that was uh very, very high rates of illness and all of that, I would probably not have the event, or actually I probably couldn't have the event. But um we're just everything is contactless, everything is spread out really far, everything is as literally as safe as it possibly could be. Um we have tons and tons of procedures. And double checks and triple checks and all of that. We've we've got, like, 30, 30 or 40 bottles of hand sanitizer, um, and, which was actually donated to us, believe it or not. And um, it's just... It's going to be safe. It's going to be fun. But unfortunately, this is a kind of a shout-out to all of our buddies that didn't make it this year. And that's truly unfortunate. But, you know, everyone's got to stay safe and make their own decisions. So I'm happy we are still able to make it. And... Um, you know, as far as the regulations and everything in Maryland right now. Anyway, um, so that's slightly a downer, but hopefully it's also hopeful because people are still being able to get out and do some stuff. And that's exciting. I've had a bunch of people tell me, please, please don't cancel. This is what I look forward to all year. Please don't cancel. So, um, so we are going to have it and, um, it's vastly reduced numbers than normal, but that's totally fine. Um, So what did I do this week? Well, I've done Shorehammer work all week. So um, I am going to try, if I remember, I'm going to try to do some behind-the-scenes recording for the podcast. Um, I never promise a podcast the week after Shorehammer. We'll see if maybe I can post one late or if I post one at all. I'm not positive. depends on how the week goes because um, Shorehammer, for me, is for... Like 20 hour days, 18 hour, maybe 18. like four 18 hour days on my feet. and uh, we get like six hours sleep each night. so it's it's pretty rough. And this year with all of the management of, you know, tracking how many people are in a room and all oh my gosh, multiple event areas and our event, our volunteers are gonna be very, very busy running around and making sure everything is fine for everyone. So that is what's going on. Wish me luck, everybody. Other than that, I am just very tired. So, <laughs> I did get to go to the local store this week, and I played against my buddy TJ. I have really, really tried to get these rocket batteries to work for Cities of Sigmar. I did the whole War Scroll Battalion. I had three Hellblaster, Hell Volley Rocket, whatevers, and um, a Lord Ordinator, and a Cogsmith, and all of that. And I did pretty well, but I forgot how his people, he played um, Legions of Nagash, the Soulblight, and uh, I forgot how they all have those chalices, so he took Neferata, she's got a chalice to heal d6 hit points, and the vampire lord on the zombie dragon or terrorgeist, whatever it is, that also has the chalice healing on d6 d6 wounds and the Blood Knights and all of that. So I was able to do some serious damage. In two turns, I got Neferata and the Terror- Terror Geist down to one hit point each. And I thought, oh, well, next turn, I'll easily take them out. They're each one hit point. Oops, nope, now Neferata's at seven hit points and the other guy's at five or something like that. And I think I'm finally just going to give up on this idea of the Cities of Sigmar thing. Um, not, not Cities of Sigmar altogether, but the Hellblaster rocket gun battery thing. Um, I so desperately wanted that to work. I really, really did. I love those models. I love the war scroll. I just love the idea of artillery and really age of Sigmar has taken out a lot of artillery out of the game. So it's nice to actually have something that has long range. It's 39 inches with my Greywater fastness uh, city. So it's, but unfortunately it just does not work out. You end up having a sink like in order to get them reliable at all, and the War Scroll Battalion, and the characters to buff them, and all of that, it's like 700 points. And they have a minimum range of 10 inches to shoot, so when you get somebody close to you, you're pretty much dead. And it just takes so many points in order to buff them enough to make them good, it just really isn't worth it. So maybe one Hellblaster rocket to you know for funsies or something like that, and uh, just to harass characters, but... Other than that, it's just truly not worth it. So anyway, he wiped me off the board. It was turn three or four, and he completely wiped me off the board. So, um, I mean, what he took wasn't super nasty necessarily. I mean, it was a good list, but Blood Knights and Nefrata and all that are no joke. But eh, it wasn't like some hardcore list. It's just that I have finally come to the conclusion Hellblaster rocket guns are not that great. <sighs> Everyone's dream dies sometime so I mean I'm gonna keep them but it's I'm just not gonna try to go so heavy on them anymore and uh, that is about it I am about to fall asleep so I <laughs> I need to get on with this podcast because it has been a very long week and we're about to have another long week so want that or want that not hey it's time for want that or want that not tonight. We are covering a model that is very, very old, probably 15 years old. Probably, it is the Space Marine Scout unit. Now you may wonder why are you covering the Scout unit? This is a very old unit. Well, it's because they got reboxed and they were on the new releases list, and I thought, you know what? I'm gonna cover an old box of models, and it's $34 for five models, which is really not that bad. I don't think that's a bad price at all for them. $34, that's pretty much in line with a lot of things. Um, now this says. I have not bought the new Space Marine Codex, but this says that Space Marines uh, scouts are a troop choice for Space Marines Army. I thought all the hullabaloo was that they were no longer troops for Space Marines Army. So maybe one of you can throw me a line and tell me whether or not they are still troops for Space Marines. Because when I heard that rumor about them no longer being troops, I was like, you know, they are the initiates. They are the new guys. They should definitely be troops. They should not be elites like... um the uh, I can't even think of what they're called. The Space Wolf Scouts the Grey Fangs or Grey something or others. But the Space Wolves do it completely opposite from everyone else. Like everyone else's initiates are scouts and the Space Wolves initiates are regular Marines and as they get older they become long fangs or whatever. So it makes sense that their scouts would be elites. But um this their website says that they are troops, so I'm interested to hear what anybody has to say about that. But the point is, is not what slot they are. The point is, these are actually pretty darn good-looking models. Now, they are, I don't know how old, probably at least 12, 15 years old, and they really hold up really, really well. I feel like this is probably the transition period between all of the new cool stuff that we got now, all the new design philosophy and everything from the new models, and between that and the old style of the metal models and things like that because these guys have a nice chunky action figure feel to them they're nice and thick and broad shoulders and rugged jawline and all of that they look like a space Marine exactly how you think they would look um, they all their details really nice they've got a ton of pouches a ton of little um, I always like their little strap with a bunch of bullets like for their boots or whatever. And uh, they come with various things. I don't even know what they come with. They come with um, like a bolt gun. They get come with bolter guns and uh, bolt pistol, chainsword, heavy bolter and all that. But I, the only thing that I have to say about this army or about this unit is that they all look like clones. And they're they're not clones. So they may have the jean seat or whatever. But uh, these guys, if you look at the heads of them, except for the one that looks like Geordie LaForge... The rest of them all look like they are uh, pentuplets. They look like they are twin brothers. And uh, I really do not care for that look. But other than that, they all look pretty cool. I wish they had some different heads. Um, but, I mean, the one that's holding the heavy bolter is short sleeve shirt, and he's he's ripped. So it's just like what you think a space room would look like. I think these models... I mean, if they released them today, let's say that this was a model unit that they've never had before, and they released them today, I feel like I would go, oh, that's a pretty neat looking unit. I would not bat an eye and go, wait a second, those look old. Those look like the old generation of, you know, models or whatever detail. I think they hold up perfectly well. And I always like how, you know, Space Marines have a three up save, right? And I'm looking at these models and... They have armor on shoulder pads and on their torso only. And they got like a little cod piece. But they've got cloth cloth sleeves and cloth pant legs. So essentially, these guys are a 4-up and Space Marines are a 3-up. So what you're telling me, GW, is that pant legs and shirt sleeves of armor give you plus 1 to your save. Thank you for letting me know that design note through deduction. Now I'm curious, a 4-up save. So... If I were to take off the shoulder pads, would they be a five-up save? And actually, that does make sense. Think about this: if so, you lose the sleeves in the pants. Now they're a four-up. You lose the shoulder pads. Now they're a five-up. Now you lose the armor in the f- in the front, and now they're a six-up. Guess who's a six-up? A lot of shirtless, like look at orc boys. They've just got you know t-shirts on. That actually makes a lot of sense. So now we know the secret behind the way they stat out these models is how much armor they have. Come to find out, sleeves and pant legs are the cutoff point. But like I said, these have a lot of motion to them, or at least the sergeant and the heavy guy do. The other guys are a little static, but they're still on 25 millimeter bases. And um, I just think they look really well, uh, really good. I really think that it holds up well, and I would definitely get it. There's no age to this whatsoever. I think this is one of probably one of the units that has held up the best for the Space Marines. And I would actually like to know the release date of these because, of course, that doesn't say that. But it would be interesting. I guarantee you they are um, 15 years old. Anyway, thanks for listening to Want That or Want That Not. And this is definitely a want that. $34, perfect price. These still hold up. Go get some.
1: Now it's time for Real Talk with Pemkron. I was always in the camp of we should charge an appropriately high amount of money for anything we produce because we've put our heart and soul into it and we genuinely think this is a superb, high-quality product that people will see the value in. Um, We're not going to sell a vast number of them. We're not going to sell them to every single person on the planet. Only a certain number of people will ever want to buy this product. Let's make uh-huh. it all let's make it brilliant. Let's make the people that do buy it really love it and let's charge a suitable price for it, you know, which has to be relatively high. And if we do that, we'll have a nice healthy company, we'll make a suitable amount of profit, and we can keep reinvesting some of that profit in the technologies to improve that and make it better down the road. And also pay everybody a sensible, realistic and in some cases a high salary, you know, above minimum wage. Uh-huh. You know, you've got a kind of strike to... to it was the kind of business we wanted to be and the kind of product offer. So, yes, yeah, so I was always in the camp of charge more. And um, there was quite a long period where i have been involved in um, helping to set prices. And, and the split was always... Those of us on the design side of the... You know, design management side of things were always like, well, yes, we should charge more for this. You, don't, you guys don't understand how much work we put into it. And the sales, the sales guys... Always wanted to sell things cheaper. They always wanted to sell to knock a few quid uh, hand knock some dollars. <laughs> off. I don't know what the American expression would be, but to um, stack it high and sell it cheap it's <laughs> every, every salesman's dream. So there was this constant dynamic in the in the business between those of us in management who who wanted to maintain that idea that or maintain that philosophy of high quality, high pricing, and then the people in the business mostly the sales people, who were always very nervous about the pricing and always wanted to have cheaper prices, make their job easier. And so that process was just ongoing. But one time, one thing happened, which made me go, oh, yeah, we, we, we've missed what's happening. Well, we set for release a set of plastic cavalry, and this would have been in the early 2000s. I can't remember exactly which... I can, but I won't say which exact product it was. But anyway... We set the price of this of this product, and I actually had um, some salesmen <laughs> come to me and say, "Alan, we've got the price wrong on this product. You think you got the price wrong? It should be higher." And I thought, "Oh no!" <laughs> <laughs> so we actually had the salesman saying that we should be charging more for the for this product, the plastic these plastic cavalry models. And that's the point when I thought, "Ah, okay, we need to re- reassess what's going on." and um, that's the point when we realized that you guys had already decided that that you valued the plastic models more than the metal models so there you go yeah because what they were saying was but these are these are cheaper these plastic chaos Knights are cheaper than the metal chaos Knights so that was the Rubicon where I think the the expectations and the preferences of the customers became moved to, to plastics
0: now one thing I want to ask you about is one of my all-time favorite armies, but I think I know the answer to this um, <laughs> Just just uh, anecdotally, you hardly ever see Dark Eldar players. And I, I love Dark Eldar, but I've always heard that they are one of the the least selling of the major armies. Is that true?
1: Yeah, probably, yeah, I think so, yeah. We um how the philosophy with Warhammer and Forty K was, was always every four or five years we would relaunch them. That was the idea. And I know people I know I know everybody now kinda of goes, Oh, it's fifth edition, fourth, third, fifth, eighth, ninth, sixth, thirty, third mm-hmm. edition, what and to be honest, I never really thought of them that way. It was just, oh, we're relaunching Warhammer or we're relaunching 40k. And that was a big event. It's a massive, massive event for the company. Um, because it kind of regalvanizes not just the customers, but uh, and it's fun for the customers, amazing for all the staff and all the people that work in all the stores and for you know, everybody. It's a, it's sort of like a, a rebirth of re energizing of a thing that you love. Why is it not going to be the most exciting thing? So, so we had that cycle of every three, four, or five years, and it settled at about every four years. We would relaunch Warhammer 40k, whichever one was in that cycle, and and those relaunches themselves are are such big events that they carry a lot of importance for customers. And we knew from the very early days we recognised that whatever armies we put into the starter sets, they would be in the hands of vast numbers of customers, old and new and therefore it was a great way for us to to introduce new new concept into the pot and especially with 40k the dark elder were kind of conceived as a fantastic way to add some spice to a 40k relaunch so it was space means and an, and a foe what's the foe who's the enemy going to be uh-huh. and uh, we will introduce a new enemy a new army and that was the dark elder and the Dark Eldar, that initial, first Dark Eldar release was kind of a little bit hit and miss. Some of the ideas in it worked really well. Some of the ideas in it were a bit clunky and didn't quite work. And the designs were a bit patchy, a little bit. Some great models, lots so of great models, but they didn't exactly set the world on fire, even though they were in the starter set. So they kind of lay fallow for the longest time, you know, so it was on the back burner. No, you know, there was no real, energy behind or, or interest in doing anything with the range and then just in passing I think one day I was talking to Jez Goodwin and it was a conversation about what you fancy doing next Jez what's the next thing you got your eyes on what sorts of things are exciting you what if anything would you your energy towards yeah um your creative energy into yeah it was kind of like Dark Elves and I can't Dark Elves and I can't quite remember if it was me po- poking him or him kind of saying I've got the idea but it was a conversation that was kind of like oh okay how would that work then what would you do because I knew that he was not a fan of the original models so I can't remember which around it was whether it was me poking him or him saying Alan I fancy I fancy doing these and it was really a question then of saying well What's your angle on it? How I said, knew he wasn't a fan of the original models. I think he aced it. And as a design project, I think he absolutely nailed it. I thought there was an incredible range with with amazing, amazing, um, interesting kind of creative ideas and fabulously rendered really Mm -hmm. super, super, super high quality. But again, as I said before, it's just not, it's just not something that's captured uh, like a really big audience. It's just something that's just, it's like a great supporting act, not the main feast, for reasons that I that kind of escape me.
0: So out of all of the armies, what would you say, just as a ballpark figure, what are the top three sellers besides Space Marines
1: and 40k? Well, I mean, the most the, popular. Any of the Space Marines. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Chaos Space Marines. I think the Eldar, were all, Eldar themselves were always pretty popular. Orcs are just enduring. But There's something about the orc, uh, but they go. The, the orcs tend to trend a little. It's not so much whether the rules are actually good; it's whether the rules are actually engaging and enthralling and exciting. <laughs> and I think, and I think sometimes the the orcs have gone through phases where they may have been efficient and good to play, but they've not been very very interesting. And they've gone through other phases where actually they've been really really fun to play, but not very effective. I think the Necrons achieved what Dark Eldar didn't. I think they've become Quite a popular one. I mean, the Tau, probably not really now. I put the Tau. I, I did used to know all this. That it's been a couple of years, you know. But um, <laughs> I, I so I probably go. Cal space Marines Eldar. I think it's Tyranids and or orks after that. Yeah.
0: Huh. I'm that actually the Tyranids do surprise me because the uh Tyranids often don't feel like they get the product support everyone else does with new models and new stuff like that. Yeah. It's been many many years since Tyranids got a new model.
1: I think the problem there is it's a it's a relatively narrow kind of design space. You've got little Tyranids, medium sized tyrannids, large tierings, and, <laughs> and they're kind of basically the same thing in each at each level. So that, maybe it's that I don't know. I've got to admit that Eldar guardians are the least interesting thing about an Eldar army ever.
0: I like, agree.
1: they <laughs> like because what you really want is you want Aspect warriors and you want warlocks and jet bikers and you want all the you want the cool sexy stuff
0: not and the wraith guard and all that yeah.
1: yeah oh yeah yeah you just don't really want elder guardians but there you go hey ho that's the way it works um and i think i think harlequins fell into that trap where it was like why would you do harlequins before you've done howling banshees the big issue we had was was, was warhammer warhammer was always a 10 times a bigger problem than 40k. And again, there's a there's a lot of misunderstanding about Warhammer. Warhammer just got increasingly hard to to do an effective job of relaunching each army whilst trying to upgrade it to the new plastic regime.
0: Is it because there were so many units and models in an army?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we had a kind of a, there was a kind of thing, which I have to admit, I was a champion of saying, we can't make things redundant. You can't you can't put people in a place where they've collected something and then you're tending to throw it out the window, even though we effectively ended up doing that in wholesale. But we were just it was a constant conundrum. So you know I just have despairing meetings, kind of saying, well, if we're going to do dwarfs, then we need to do six plastic tools. Oh, and then and go six plastic releases. Well, we can do three. and You go well, yeah, but okay. So that means you, you, we won't do anything new. It was just hard. In fact, we should do eight, eight tools for this. I mean, like, <laughs> that would be such a huge part of the total annual investment in tooling. It was just not possible. So it was kind of, I, I understood that it was frustrating, but it was very frustrating. Um, and, and what was behind it was, was just the, It like constantly eroding sales of Warhammer. It was just getting to be an increasingly harder, harder sell. And, uh, that's just one of those realities that, um, we never wanted to let Warhammer go. It was never in the, in the, it was never in anybody's thoughts, but it was really, really, really hard to keep the whole company on board. Because if you go to a salesman and say, do you want lots of things that sell really well or lots of things that sell kind of okay they're going to go oh no more space marines please alan <laughs> <laughs> look, look at these lovely dwarves yeah they are lovely actually we yeah, well, we don't need eight we, just a couple of dwarves because we, <laughs> we have more space marines
0: and if it's just a couple releases it's kind of like a half-hearted effort it seems
1: you get into that place where no matter how much you do it doesn't seem to be quite enough so i was looking at the um, performances of all of the you know looking at loads of data one time and uh I was trying to correlate the amount of plastics that range was with its relative cells. And, and with 40k, absolutely matched up. So that, you know, that we, there was a, a clear, clearly as we converted armies from metal to plastic, we were seeing massive upsurges in the cells of those armies. And uh, mm. uh, and it wasn't just a up and up; it was up and plateauing. You know, and it was definitely move up to a new level. <laughs> it's all the one thing so, so even for those armies that we had, which were pretty much all plastic, like the Empire Army, it we were just seeing that there was, just wasn't the same uplift. It was just like, wow, so I've gone to all the effort and trouble to put that army into plastic, and it's not moved the needle. Commercial realities of things.
0: And I think in the same vein, this is really the last question I have for you because I know I don't want to keep you forever and keep you up, but um, uh, referring to the female space marines thing, oh. um, <laughs> Why are there no sp- female space marines currently in the the range? What's the reason for that?
1: There was not not even any thoughts in those days about anything too deep about space marines. Space marines were just cool future warriors. Mm-hmm. Badass fighters in power armor with guns. The, the idea of the space marines was just that they were just rock-hard, super science fiction warriors. There wasn't a kind of a sense about them being a a uh, cultural iconic thing. They became that because 40k Road Trader book was so, such a momentous release, such an, such an extraordinary kind of event that the space marines kind of became an iconic part of that, of that explosive kind of launch into the world. What a lot of people don't know is that actually space marines predate 40k. The first space marine, LE2, Imperial Space Marine, Designed by one, Bob Naismith was released way before Road Trader book. And interesting enough, it sold like hotcakes. Like, <laughs> was, like, um, it instantly became the bestest selling sister miniature ever in metal. Wow. That they were just typical kind of Brian Ansar. Speculative ideas. Brian always had a thing in his head about a space moon. His kind of, um, idea, he, he always had a thing in his head and he said, we'll get Bob Naismith to design us a space moon. So what's a space? And he kind of gave me a rough idea about what he was wanting. So I briefed Bob and Bob made a thing and sent it down and I showed it to Brian and Brian told me off and said, no, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> it be more like this. So we, we went through a few iterations of that and then Bob turned up one day and or came down to visit. Brian was there, and, and Bob says, So oh, I didn't want to change it again because it would just break because I've already already modified it it's like a dozen times or whatever." So I, I've just made some new ones, and then he took these models out of his out, of his, out of his bag, and he showed us what was le two space. Marine. And Brian, went, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> just, that's what I asked for. <laughs> well done.
0: <laughs> so then so. they essentially put it in production to see if it would do anything sales wise, right?
1: Yeah, because the Ellie range was an idea to just to do things, to try stuff, to be uh-huh. fun. Because it was fun. It was like, oh, put some model. It was never releasing models to, to a particular plan. It was releasing things that would sell and be fun and exciting and int- or interesting and uh-huh. who knows. Um, and um, although that was, it was kind of idea, yeah, that's good. And, and it sounds like a lot of effort. It was just one of many things we were doing. Um, but we put Ellie 2 out, and it sold. Unbelievably well, like really, just sold and sold and sold, such that I had to get Bob to make some more. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, so there's another, there's a whole range of those very early space designs, and they look a bit gawky and slightly clunky now, but at the time they were like really wild and crazy, um, and they they sold really well, and, that, and um, that predates 40k. So I've always kind of looked at 40k as kind of really being the game that we that we created to give people an excuse to use those space remodels in a way. Mm -hmm. It's kind of odd, isn't it? I know that's kind of heresy. We had very limited ambitions for for what kinds of miniatures we would do with it because we had no concept. We had absolutely no idea it would be as epic a a moment of release, a historical moment of some significance in the world of gaming. I remember testing it with with Rick. We had um, two or three squads of spacemen on one side, some D and D beholders on the other side, who were the um, enslavers, uh-huh. and, uh, and 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 that they had enslaved some local inhabitants of this world. The space means were going to save, and that the local inhabitants were medieval bowmen. Because um, <laughs> those were the models we had. So one side was this, this squad of space means, and the other side had um, medieval bowmen with these D and D beholders this, enslavers. Um It was quite good fun. And that, that was, um, yeah, yeah, that was the playtesting 40k. Um, but, um, because there was no, no, no idea that it would be so popular, Brian used to say two things that we always found quite funny. And I'm sure you'll be upset that I've said this, but Brian also used to say that science fiction doesn't sell and nobody buys aliens. What aliens can have in the game? Well, you can't, we're not going to make any special aliens for it, Rick. So, um, all the aliens just have to be models from our fantasy range and we'll do packs of guns that people can. (laughs) <laughs> the, um, the, so the aliens were oh space eldar well, space elves Um so they're elf models oh orcs well guess what we've got lots of orcs so yep. orc, orcs are just orcs with axe cut off and a gun <laughs> stuck in there that was the that was kind of the idea that's what Brian hmm. had said he said that's what we do and um so we actually so we actually had weapons made, and and one of the things we did, we all did is we converted loads of fantasy models and stuck guns in their hands and things. There was no great expectation of the of the range being particularly big or anything we did no idea. Um, and and Warhammer, to be honest, fantasy models sold like brilliant were brilliant. that was, the business was massively successful. So it wasn't like we were thinking, oh, we needed something to do that would be really successful. We had Warhammer, that was doing very well indeed. Thank you very much. So the whole 40k phenomenon kind of took us a bit by surprise and joy turned to despair very quickly because the minute we realized it was going to, it was going to, it blew the doors off, as it were. We had, um, we had a problem because we we had to scrabble around to get stuff released for it. Mm-hmm. So we went from having like virtually no plans to release anything to suddenly, Alan, you're in big trouble because you haven't got anything to release 40k <laughs> what are you doing 40k then said you told me no right okay yeah sorry brian yeah okay yeah better kill guys quick yeah we, we need orcs with guns we need what else we got rick what did you put in um and then Rick, really <laughs> basically because designers would we'd make things um, or brian would tell us oh we need this thing you need and then we'd have to go to Rick and say, oh, Rick, we need some rules for this. And Rick would go, but I was told I could move the game. <laughs> so it was kind of really crazy period. And so we'd had the plastic marines, which as i say was a kind of bit of a one-off, RTO1 one was a bit of a one-off experiment, which is why we we then struggled to follow it up with anything even vaguely comparable, but we we made it. Amongst those, those, those models, I think it was Ali Morrison did, two female space marines in power armor they were female space marines as we designed, and they got put in the general mixing um, because there wasn't necessarily any cohesion between what was in the book and the miniatures i don't think there's any any thought that oh they're only male i think that's just kind of like the default position mm-hmm. and again again i don't think it was a misstep necessarily but then you get to a place where you're suddenly not suddenly where years later and people go oh are weren't there any female space (laughs) friends? Oh, well, because we've just never done that. And it seems kind of odd. And then the writers have taken it on themselves to write that into the background as a justification for why there aren't. And and it just kind of evolved that way, really.
0: So Um, why... If there were originally some female Space Marines, why didn't they make it into the major squads, like
1: when you started doing units? Because there was just never any, it just never occurred to us to do it. In that era, it just wasn't something that we ever thought about. And there was certainly no demand for, there was no particular special demand for female models at that time in the history of the company. If anything, possibly the other way around. When we introduced the, the mixed selections, the CO range, the C range, the concept was that we'd have, so there's a hundred fantasy fighters, they'd be in a big container, and that would be the selection. And you'd pack those into blister packs. So you'd have these random selections from, from any any 10 models from that hundred castings. i talked to um, trade customers and they'd say, I need 30 CO1s, but can you make sure they don't no female fighters in the mix because i still got stick, stick on my hooks that i haven't sold mm. and so and so in the end you just go well people just complain all the time about ha- having unsold female fighters on their racks but well, i won't put them in the mix because they've got the goal is to give them stuff that's going to sell you know and uh, so there was a very negative reinforcement because people didn't Really have a thing there in those days about buying them and wanting them. Why well, it's one of those things, you know. Looking back, it seems kind of odd, but it, it was just perfectly natural at the time. Just as natural as if I was buying uh, ancient Romans to play, in, uh, to put together an army of ancient Romans. I wouldn't expect to find female legionnaires in my Roman yeah. legion or in my French Napoleonic units. I wouldn't expect it. I just it wouldn't be part of the part of the expectation. And, and our cultures have changed over, over the last 30, 40 years in a way which is, of course, like all these things, unpredictable, unfathomable, you know, that, that awareness of, um, that, mo- sort of modern kind of consciousness and awareness of issues like, um, representation and uh-huh. uh, gender. Race, religion, da 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 da. Those those are all relatively modern sens- sensibilities that are. Because looking back, it seems extraordinary. How can you possibly? You are you horrible old sexist man? And you go, well, <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that. It really wasn't like that. It was just, It wasn't a conversation in in any form. Um, I mean, it was extraordinarily unusual back in the eighties for there to be any female customers. I mean, just like no female customers has become. Increasingly less true. I'm glad it's changing. I've absolutely beat myself up because we missed a trick when we did the Stormcast Eternals for the for the launch set. Two or three of those models, you know, should have been female models. There's no doubt about it. And it's one of those like, oh, damn, we missed a trick. We missed we missed the opportunity opportunity because it was never because again, it became a huge kind of negative point about Asia sigma and it was I think oh blast we should have why didn't we do that and then um studio said to me oh well, we, we thought they were just blokes you no, like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> or off she did not make that mistake again <laughs> so, uh, but they had they did they, they fixed that
0: they did oh they've got all sorts of the uh, the evocator unit is 50 yeah. 50 men and women they're sequiturs yeah. and all of them yeah
1: and they were supposed to just be just, yeah, just in there any, at least it could be. And actually it's the same with the whole thing about, about race and proper representation of people of any and all ethnicities in 40k and in Warhammer. One of the things that, um, was actually made very clear when we did Age of Sigma was we're now moving Warhammer, the fantasy Warhammer away from the constraint of being a faux representation of a medieval, uh-huh. environment where all of those sort of standard medieval fantasy tropes have to be respected suddenly we'd go no we don't need to do that anymore our, uh-huh. our our fantasy warriors our fantasy characters can be any and all left there's no reason for us to not do that in fact and that was a very very deliberate statement of intent at the beginning of, of warhammer age of I'd say guys you got to address this in the painting and and sometimes in the sculpting that it was always the intent that that the products were for anybody that was interested in them as said any creed or colour or whatever you know there's no shouldn't be any barriers and actually i think it's that new understanding now that we have or that better understanding we have that that a barrier can be the absence of something once that penny drops you kind of go yeah absolutely that is and we don't want it to be variable to be we want anybody to come in and it's an interesting thing about about this issue is that it used to be like i so said going back to the early years of of games Workshop, it, it did used to be that that the mostly almost exclusively young male audience just wasn't interested in female figures and you kind of i wonder why i uh-huh. wonder why they weren't and of course because it's not them is it it's not them. They're not. They're, they don't see themselves. And so you go, oh yeah. But I think the audience has become way more sophisticated these days, and uh, much broader. Many a much much broader spread of of people and of interests and of reasons for being involved in it. I really enjoyed um, telling the, st- the studio painters the heavy metal team, that they should paint some <laughs> some of the chaos warriors different skin colors and they were all like got really super excited and then the designers got all super excited and then actually I was pushing to literally just before I left the company It was almost like one of the last one of the last things I was I was doing was sort of um throwing out all of the ideas I still had left in my head (laughs) to uh, like studio management and things to sort of say oh by the way I always meant us to do this and oh by the way we all meant to do that and one of the things was oh by the way Make some bloody female inquisitors and some female assassins and just the more female characters in your 40 k ranges. Do some and these mm-hmm. little kits. Do some of those.
0: I've been waiting for them to come out with a new guard kit, and I'm sure when they do, there will be heads for female, male, whatever. You know, I. Yeah. I... It should. There should be. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Okay, mate. All right. All right. Well. Thank well, you I'll very take... much, Alan. See you later. Well, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.